Hi everyone and welcome again to Connected Learning TV. This is a special pre-digital learning day conversation today um, brought to you in part by our friends at the National Writing Project and Educator Innovator who helped us put this together. I'm John Barilloni, the Community Manager for the Connected Learning Alliance and I'm going to be our host for today. So if you're watching this right now, please, please, please take a moment to share it out with your networks uh, via whichever social media tool you so choose. So as many of you hopefully know, next Friday, March 13th, and I don't find that ominous at all, Friday the 13th, is the 2015 Digital Learning Day. And it's a day to kind of celebrate digital media and learning and hopefully a way to help practitioners connect with some like-minded peers. Um, but today, before we kind of get into the hyper-positivity that usually surrounds those kind of days, those kind of events, we want to take a little step back to think a little more critically about digital media and learning, and especially some of those more persistent challenges that we know practitioners are facing. And hopefully we can talk a little bit about maybe how to solve some of the obstacles that are out there. So before we dive into our chat, let's just go over a couple quick details like we usually do. If you're watching live right now, we welcome your comments and your questions either via the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning or the Q&A feature that you should see in the video player here. And we'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. So before we begin, I'd like to give all of our guests here a chance to just briefly introduce themselves. So I'm going to go from my left to right. So Al, do you want to start us off? Sure. Hello. My name is Al Elliott. I'm a fifth grade educator in Hoover, Alabama, near Birmingham. Uh, and I uh, host the uh, sometime occurring Monday's Eve discussion online. Cool. Thanks. And Anna? Ooh, I didn't know I was next. <laughs> Hi, I'm Anna Smith. I'm currently at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I'm doing a postdoc here in writing and new learning ecologies. So I really look at how our teenagers are developing as writers in all the different formal, informal contexts that they're in. Um, and so that's what brings me here today. And I'm also a, an educator for years, and that's how I see myself as well. Thanks, Anna. Next for me, Ontario. I didn't know either. I'm ready. Uh, my name is Antero Garcia. I'm an assistant professor at Colorado State University, uh, and I'm mainly spending my time preparing pre-service English teachers uh, for the world of education. Thanks, Antero. And Kim? I'm Kim Jackson, and I'm an assistant professor, composition literacy. Um, Antero and I, our colleges share the same acronym. Mine's California State University um, at Chico State. And I mostly work with, yeah, future teachers and all the super cool, we have all the cool kids here. They're all awesome. And Zach, round us out here. Great, yeah, I'm Zach Chase. I'm a ConnectEd fellow at the U.S. Department of Education uh, in the Office of Educational Technology. Uh, also a longtime classroom teacher and an instructional technology coordinator before, uh, after that. So all over the place, really. Uh, and thanks to everybody for being with all the cool kids. Uh, although I've seen some kids in other places, and they seem pretty cool, too. <laughs> I've got pretty cool kids. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, everybody, for joining. And I'm sure everybody's looking forward to the energy and the insights and the stories that you're going to be sharing here. So to start us off, before we kind of dive into the more critical lens portion of this particular session. 
let's start off by just sharing a little bit how we've collectively seen digital media being used in education in a way that positively impacts students' lives. And that could mean, uh, Ontario, you were talking about this just last night, giving more student voice. Or maybe a digital media is helping kids discover what their interests and passions are. So I'll open up the floor there, and whoever wants to jump in can jump in. Okay, I guess I'll start. <laughs> um, I know one of the things, like now, now we're having you know technology or just a one-to-one -one environment. Uh, you you actually mentioned kids being able to find their interests. Uh, that's like one of the hugest things to me because not only can they research what it is they're interested in, but they actually can share that interest. I know, like we we've been a Google App for Education school system for I guess at least four years now, and uh, so the students are actually using the tools for something other than schoolwork. Like it's just designed around what they're interested in, or what they like, or things that they think they can actually change. And I, I think that's just like an, an awesome, you know, an awesome thing to equip our young people with to think that they actually have access to the same tools that adults have access to that are they're using to change the world. So that's like a like a, a huge step up to me. I think uh, using those digital tools. I'd, I'd actually take it a, a step. Up, um, I think the the use of tools to help teachers think about these things as well is incredibly important. Um, one of the things I, I say in pretty much every conversation is what we want for kids, we should probably want for teachers as well. Um, so there's a community consolidated uh, school district 59 and in the Chicago suburbs um, has a, a series of videos that they're working on. It's 59 and 59, and they're 59-second videos profiling professional members of the community um, and putting those up there on, on their Vimeo cha uh, channel, and, and maybe, John, we can push that link out. Um, but it's, I think it's a great way to kind of personalize uh, what's happening in the lives of the adults in these communities of learning, and, and I think that that opens folks up to thinking, oh, this might be a tool also for, for students to use as well. Because uh, I think there's a, uh, a fear when we hand them right to the right to the students, and the and the teachers haven't had that experience yet. You know, that reminded me of um, <clears throat> I was just listening to Emma Mercier. Um, she's also here at the University of Illinois. Um, she was talking about a study that she or a school that she was a set of schools I think in London that she was involved in, and she put up on the screen all of these different. Um, documents that teachers had to deal with on a daily basis. So the screen was filled with all these different documents. And she says what we what we often fail to to notice is that every single one of these documents is created with a different app or different set of software or different platform. And and this is a daily occurrence for the adults in the classroom. And and she says we so rarely give them time to learn and play around and and figure out and and mess up, <laughs> right? And and then she and then let alone have time to think about what to do then, what they want to do with uh, you know with these various kinds of documents and apps and platforms and things um, with youth. And uh, so I thought that was a that was a really good insight. Nice. I like the time for everybody to play and the focus here on both teachers and students to do that. Um, I really like the affordance of digital platforms as a way to 
um, think about an ecology of participation so that it's not just the student who talks or raises their hand in class that becomes the one that's heard, but um, depending, you can really use a platform that works best for whatever the student wants to say or how, what they want to share. And of course, I think we all find that teachers or students, sometimes the most quiet ones in class are the ones who blog or tweet or create a cool concept map or Google Doc or whatever. So I like, I like the affordance in terms of how it can demonstrate a huge range of participation structures and connect them to real communities on the planet that have, that share similar interests with them. Yeah, I love that phrase, ecology of participation, and I think. I think John Seeley Brown's talked a little bit about that, right, the digital learning ecology. Um, I, I think one way for us to think about it is um, digital tools, and I, I think maybe moving away from tools and thinking about, like, the digital dispositions of young people and what they're already doing in the real world and how school doesn't have to look all that different from what kids typically do outside of school. And I think uh, I think that's what these, these new learning platforms are, are good opportunities for. One thing I've been thinking about is it really allows students to be engage civically, or it can allow students to be engaged civically in the world beyond them, right? So using um, online platforms, using their mobile devices, uh, using social networking as means for civic engagement, for activism, um, and really trying to challenge what happens in schools as ways to create and affect meaningful change. I would, I would add... Oh, I'm sorry, Anna. Go ahead. Uh, I would add not just necessarily at the systemic level. Um, one example um, is a, a story about a teacher uh, named Chris Kraft um, who, uh, through an organization called Enabling the Future, um, which helps connect folks, uh, kids who need uh, prosthetics um, and with folks who have 3D printers. And so Chris, in his um, middle school, asked who's interested in working on this uh, and three girls helped to design and print out a prosthetic hand for a girl who I think lived a couple of hours away from their school. Uh, and so they, they had the technology to print out this hand. They printed it out. They sent it to the girl. Um, never actually having met her, she got the hand. And so all of a sudden she can interact with the world differently. Um, and, and the girls can see uh, the use of technology as being uh, helpful in a, in a different way. I think that the systems piece is, is in incredibly important. Um, and I think that it's also a way for folks to connect one-on-one -on -one and for students to connect one-on-one. -on -one. Um, at, at levels that we hadn't really conceived of before or that uh, were limited geographically before. But I also think, too, like just to build on, on that point, like when, when we think about how we were able to adapt to the world that we live in now, it really came from us interacting with the real world and like never, never disconnecting. So, teen or whenever they interact with that real world, then it encouraged them to find like to find that passion. Like a lot of people spend their whole lives and never really figuring out like what's their purpose. So the sooner they're able to start thinking about you know real world interactions as an option later on, I think you know like what what subject would have brought up them being able to create a prosthetic limb for someone they've never met, right? Just bringing in that real-world aspect to them and say, hey, who would like to do this? Is actually giving them with that choice. And I, I think, yeah, that's, that's an awesome example. 
Um, I was just thinking in terms of talking about real world systems um, and these dispositions is that I, I had the pleasure for a couple of years, for about two years time to work with a group of young men and, and really travel with them across like when they're in out of school space, when they're in school, on the train and I was, I was mapping their writing um, and how they're developing as writers over about that, those two years and, and first of all just like what Ontario says, we know that young men want to be writers, they want to create things, they have things to say, they, can, um, they have audiences and, and things they'd like to do with those audiences and um, one thing that, that was powerful, um, going back to the question that you posed John, um, that I saw is that um, they have the dispositions toward um, looking for feedback on their writing. They wanted to um, interact with audiences and and get better and improve. Um, when they would get a piece of new tech in their hands, even something like an like an iPod, right? Some of them had iPods. They, they like one had his brother's old iPod, or someone had um, time on a laptop when it wasn't being used with his. Uh, There's another young man when his brother would come home to do his laundry, he would bring his iPad and he would have a few minutes on the iPad. They would engage in these very, very, very school-like activities. They would engage in, they would be researching, they would be composing, they would be sending drafts of things for people to get, give them feedback on, and, um, and it really supported this uh, you know, the, their writing practices became more more like what we would look for as evidence of learning in schools, um, but without those devices and um, what they were doing didn't, you know, you couldn't see the evidence of those those dispositions and those trajectories that they had for themselves. And it was really like purpose-driven, like you were just talking about. Um, so it really facilitated those things. Those are some great examples, everybody. I'm sure we could, you know, fill up more than an hour just talking about positive examples that we all know about. Um, but to get a little bit more into the meat of what we're trying to cover here today, um, so what? And Anna, I was hearing this a little bit in terms of your last piece there, talking about equity maybe being a little bit of an issue, or internet access even just being a, a common issue. So, what are some of the common concerns? or obstacles that we still hear about when it comes to incorporating digital media more into the education or learning pathways of kids? Well, I think we can actually pick up on what Antero was already talking about, which is, I mean, particularly in higher ed, but I even am finding this in K-12 settings that I work with, that access to the devices is not so much the issue anymore. It still is, but it's not as big of an issue. It is access to those dispositions that Antero is speaking to. It's, it's about access to ways of working with platforms, tools, software, whatever, in ways that are collaborative, networked, professional. And so I, and, and it goes back, it actually goes back to what Zach was saying too, because it's about also helping teachers develop if they're interested, right, those dispositions around how to use these tools or ways of making um, being comfortable with messy, like all these kind of ways of being that a lot of us have gotten used to um, that I think actually is a real challenge when I talk to other colleagues uh, about getting started is they're, they're nervous about giving up control, the messiness, and if they aren't using these tools in these ways, how can they support kids doing that? And so I, I think that's a real issue, not the device thing anymore, but the ways of using devices. 
And I, I, I don't know that it... I would, all, I would also add that I think it comes from handing devices to folks without stopping before you even think about making an investment in those devices and saying, hey, what is it we want to have happen in this space? Um, because I think everybody would agree learning, um, and, right? We'd all be like, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, but I think there's a lack of clear conversations about what that learning could and should look like. Um, and, and folks... and, and I'm not saying it should look a certain way, but I'm saying that, that within a system, uh, folks don't have a clear uh, goal for what that should look like. Um, and I think that that becomes an issue as well. So I've got this device, and if I've had the conversation or if there's been a conversation in my system ahead of time, then I've got a direction for, okay, I've got this device, and here are the expectations of what learning looks like. This device helps me do it. I think we've... I think the pe I think pencil and pen and paper got away from us that way too, um, right? But it came in right after we all seemed like we were on the same page, um, no pun intended there. Um, and but now this is a chance for us. And I, and actually, I think that it also. Sorry, John, I'm going to point to positive things happening. I think that there are districts and schools that are having this conversation because those device they're realizing, oh heck, we don't know what these are for. We should maybe have this conversation. Some of them are having them a little late. Some of them have, are having them early. Um, but, I, but I think that they're seeing the opportunity in, in, in the conversation uh, the devices provide. Yeah, I'll point yeah. to the negative if, if Zach doesn't want to. Uh, <laughs> in, in the, I, I think uh, it feels like a lot of districts right now um, are, have like a, a digital FOMO, right? Like the fear of missing out with digital devices. And, and I think we, we just kind of see this across the country of um, at least in classrooms, there's there's a, a rush to get digital stuff in classrooms because it's it's what you're supposed to do in the 2010s right now, uh, and when we're not really thinking through. I, and I say I, I'm making a blanket statement. And I think there's some really powerful work, and I know Zach can point to a lot of it at the federal level. Um, but there's I think I think what we're we're not doing is having the necessary conversation with teachers about how these digital devices that have been primarily in an informal learning environments how are they affecting what happens in classrooms and schools. How are we preparing teachers for those spaces? How do they mediate issues around equity, race, class, gender, sexuality? Right. I think all these devices come from very specific dispositions of um, capitalism, and we need to think through what does that mean in our classrooms when we have, you know, an Apple-endorsed space or not endorsed, but these are the products we're using. And so I think this is part of the challenge that we're thinking through. I think we, we think about equity as primarily what happens with students, but I think we need to think about how that's mediated by the devices today. And I, I think another negative in, in that same vein, uh, I, th I think we would talk about capitalism, just the whole marketing aspect. I mean, like, you know, I think that Apple has the coolest commercials, right? They have the best looking devices and it's not necessarily the best tool in all necessarily, you know, situations. Uh, if you're a Google app for education school system, for example, and you buy everybody an iPad, there are going to be some issues with some of the apps, just understanding that ecosystem. So knowing that on the front end instead of just you know having a rep come in and kinda show you all of the wonderful beautiful things that is going to happen when you get this device and then realizing wait a minute we gotta keep buying apps or we gotta we're gonna run out of memory I mean I'm taking these pictures but you know just actually really understanding that every device manufacturer is trying to sell more and more of them right and they're not necessarily thinking hmm how can we best educate your kids first um, I think that's like a, a, a real dilemma, and I think a lot of people in the in the decision making positions are just like you know 
they're like the rest of us, right? Like if it, if it looks like it's it's the best thing, then they feel like you know they they've got to jump on this digital bandwagon and make a decision before necessarily, you know, they know this is the best tool. So I, I think there's a lot of that going on. And I would say, uh, Anna, I've interrupted you twice now. I'm gonna <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I think we just jump in at the same time. <laughs> Good timing. Great minds think alike. <laughs> yes. So, um, in terms of timing, I guess. But you were making me think, um, just barely, that uh, around um, something that we also don't t think of or talk about a lot is surveillance and um, and what we have with devices and the surveillance capabilities, a lot of our great our great ideas become commodified in education and then they become stale. They become, you know, they, we scale them up, we apply them to everyone in these very rigid ways and it becomes this very stale thing. And when we talk about technology and bringing in particular products that come from the market, it's already, right, it's already a commodity, it's already um, feeding into that system. And, and, and with that comes this other, these other questions around surveillance and I think those are important to talk about. I want to I want to speak to 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 Al's point for a second. Um, is that 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 has been going on uh, long before we had an influx of things that needed to be plugged in uh, in in the classroom. Um, but that I'd say that there's a scale of uh, of the advent that is that is much larger. And and to Anna's point, which I think is a great one. Um, is I think that there is a rift often uh, between what folks, and I'm not even going to say folks, I'm going to say oftentimes uh, maybe parents don't understand or aren't made to understand or haven't um, been educated around the privacy protections that are specific to students within a school environment, um, right? Because when we talk about big data as just adults operating in the open world, there's much less of a protection for us, um, but that there are actually some very strong pieces of protection for, for students, and, and, uh, and I think it's important for parents to understand that those are there and, and to know what those questions are. I'm, I'm, that makes me think that... Um... Oh, wait, I just lost my thought. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, actually, I think it's back that I, that the idea of understanding something like privacy or these ways of being or ways of working, um, and, and I, I don't think that anyone's going to learn how to do that if they don't get the opportunity to do those things, right? I mean, that's the that's at least for me in higher ed. Um, I'm, I get so frustrated with things like the learning management system and people being, you know, forced to use it in some ways. I don't, but um, because I don't know that how we're ever going to figure out how to be kind on the web, how to deal with our own data and privacy issues if we aren't out, out there doing that and have mentors who are helping us figure out how to do this work. Um, so I, I think that's interesting that the education of everybody and the education has to happen in the places and spaces that we're actually doing that work, right? I am. Um, the device thing is interesting to me, right? Because the first thing you do is you go buy iPads or someone will buy you a learning management system or someone will pay for Turnitin or whatever. And I'm always like, what problem are we solving? Mm -hmm. like, like you keep buying me solutions to problems I don't have and then and then I'm supposed to make my problem look like that solution um, stop buying things <laughs> like really what this is about is collaborating and networking and sometimes 
post-it notes and a pen are all I need to, to do the to do the disposition work. It doesn't always have to be a plugged-in thing, right? So I think if we start by asking teachers and students what are the problems of teaching and learning and not start with device, that that would be a move in the right direction. So, so there's a Oh, go ahead, Al. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I guess I was just going to kind of, no, no, I'm sorry, but I, I would just kind of speak on that specifically just, I mean, it really was your point, Zach, that you were making earlier about how before there was an influx of technology, but as she's saying, teachers are rarely consulted. Like, teachers are getting these devices, and, and instead of it being like, okay, you have a technology budget, what would you like to do? It's, here is this device, here is this website, here is this app, go. And, and I think that's the, the best question. What problem is this solving? And I think just overall, <clears throat> education by and large is not run by the educators. It's, it's like one of the few fields where the professionals, boots on the ground, are, are like rarely consulted with any meaningful policy. Um, and, and, I, and I think that is manifesting itself like more and more now with, with, the, with the upscale of all of the, you know, the digital rollouts. I mean, there, there are a lot of teachers. It is overwhelming with no technology, right? Like pencil, paper, common core, okay? That's enough. So now you're throwing iPads, Chromebooks, mobile devices, Google Classroom, Edmodo, you know, oh, let's have our own Twitter and, you know, Hangouts and, and all of that. I mean, and then for teachers to just say, okay, could somebody please ask me what we think? And, and, and I think that's kind of what's, what's missing, and, and I think it's being more and more, I guess, um, left out even now with the technology rollouts because we're not part of that decision-making at all. I love that point, Al, and I, I, guess, I guess I worry about, so there's a danger when we celebrate something like Digital Learning Day of celebrating the tools and not the kind of individuals who behind the tools, right? And in some ways, it means we, we need to think through the vocabulary we have for the digital devices and um, are, is the way that we're using tools and are the tools we're using respectful for the teachers and students in the classrooms? Uh, do, they, do they foster loving relationships? Uh, do, they, do they function in kind of transformative ways that do things that are fundamentally different from, you know, if, if a pencil and paper, as Zach mentioned, are, are going to do the job just fine, we don't need the digital pencil and digital paper, right? Like it should be doing something fundamentally different, otherwise it's just an expensive paperweight, right? Or I guess non-digital paper weight. I guess we don't need a paperweight anymore. I'm going to stop going on mute. <laughs> no, I love that. And, Ontario, that makes me think, like, I would love a real focus on the learning part of Digital Learning Day, on Digital Learning Day. Um, you know, Digital Learning Day is not about doing stuff with digi on digital devices, right? It's about learning and, the, you know, our capacities when we're, we're using that. There's you know a, what? We should come up with a like learning digital hashtag. Okay, I'm sorry. We could put the learning first, right? Make it a thing. <laughs> I want to I want to hit on a, a thing that you said, Al, and and one of the most important part, pieces of the, a couple of things that our office has put out. Um, in, in the very beginning of both of those documents, uh, there's one on uh, creating infrastructure to get connectivity to and throughout schools. And it says, put together a team of folks who aren't just the technical people, um, but whoever would be impacted by the decisions you're about to make. And not everybody, right? Like every teacher in this group all of a sudden um, is, is, le is more diluted, but somebody who could represent um, teacher voice or a couple people um, is, is one piece. And then um, with our, uh, we've got a professional learning, uh, online professional learning uh, toolkit. 
uh, and it says get all the plans together that you've got in your learning system. Um, don't make this a digital learning plan, but say what are the things that you want to do in your system. You've already said, I mean, districts, I, 13 is the most plans uh, a teacher has said their district had that I've, when I've had this conversation with folks. Get them all together and say, how can these tools better serve the goals that you've already said are the most important? Um, technology shouldn't be the goal. Um, uh, and I think that I'm, I know that I'm preaching to the choir, and probably anyone who's watching believes that as well. Um, but I think if we all keep saying it over and over again, then somebody new will hear it. Uh, but I think that that's important. So one of the topics that I haven't heard come up just yet was the aspect of how you assess learning with all of these different digital media, digital tools that are in play here. And I'm sure it's different for every teacher, every school across the board in terms of what they actually are using. Sometimes that can get pretty messy. So how do we support both teachers and the schools who are asked to think about you know, assessing the kind of learning that happens through those digital media, di digital tools. Is there certain resources, communities, people you point to that um, kind of have a, a good sense of this, or is it more of a kind of ad hoc DIY process? I think the first conversation with that is really um, defining learning together. And I think that's something that I've learned. Um, the more opportunities I've had to talk to more and more people that work within education, the more definitions of learning that I see at play. Um, and we really are in a system where learning means that I can reproduce something, both the form and the content that, of something that has already um, been created. Um, and and what, what we're looking toward is, is more production, right? Um, not just a reproduction, but have, doing something with the knowledge is then a sign of learning. And that's kind of a move that we're going towards, among several other moves. But even production, production could actually be, could actually be reproduction. Um, in, uh, so unless it's uh, something that really creates an opportunity for some agency within that, if it's really actually an open production, if it's really uh, some place where there's creativity within it, that's when it's the, the kind of production I think that we're looking for. So I think assessing, assessing learning, I think the first thing we have to talk about is, well, what are we meaning? What, are, what is it that we, what, what are signs of learning in our educational systems right now, and what should they be? Yeah, and I love that. And you know, um, it's interesting, I was having a really similar conversation with colleagues just yesterday here on our campus. We are starting to notice that the more we talk about purpose with students and less about product, like this is the intention of the assignment, here's the purpose, now you find a way to make meaning, I mean, I've really backed off on my assignments. I have some assignments now that are just say things like make an artifact. Um, based around something, this thing we're reading, or do some synthesis work. And students, of course, as we all could have predicted, are, are making, producing way better stuff than I could have come up with. I mean, just two days ago, I tweeted out a student who made an RSA Animate that was a synthesis of everything we've read in literacy studies that is just stunning, right? And a student who decided just to create her own blog around some literacy narratives that she was finding. And, you know, interpretive dance, or I don't even really care what they make. 
<laughs> but but it allows the students to have a conversation about purpose. Like, what's the purpose of learning? What do you, what do you want to get out of this? Um, and so, what gets complicated though is the assessment because they're all making very different things. But I think if the purpose is, it, I think the rubric or whatever it is, and I don't, I'm not a fan of rubrics. I'd rather just give them all the points. I'll be honest. I'm a little rogue. Someone else can solve this problem. Shocked am I. <laughs> But I, you know, I think if the whatever the assessment is comes out of the purpose and intention and is driven by the learner and it's organic and we make it together, that might be better. I'm just going to give them all the points for now. Kim, can I? Uh, that I, I, I say that what you have just said uh, a lot, um, and I think that, and it was the it was the same when I was in the classroom. But not everybody made things that were better than I could have thought of. Some people, some students made things that were way worse than anything I thought they were about to make. Um, right, and, and I think that often when we say, oh, that's, this is, because there are, there were always like five in the classroom that were be above and beyond anything uh, that I had anticipated. But we, I think teachers also have to be pre prepared for crap to show up and to not think that because something looks horrible that it does not also, to be able to see the learning in that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I would agree. You're right. And in fact, Zach, you have to, you're right. I think sometimes um, then we have to be okay with failed attempts at making something too and, and still understand that the, that the process of learning something or that we know that where some other students may get moved to doing something that maybe you know, aesthetically is more interesting is probably more likely going to come from seeing other students do stuff than what whatever I'm going to show them, right? But you hope that the other students push that as well. Yeah, I feel like in some sense the, the crap comes from when kids know that the work they're producing is for an audience of one, right? And I think that's that tends to be the problem with if we produce stuff online as kids do in out-of-school context, they're going to work really hard because they're hoping that their their peers are going to see it, they're going to comment, comment on it, and I think I mean, I think a lot of literacy research is looking at spaces like, uh, you know, fan fiction and what happens in those spaces. I just want to point out, I think one of the challenges when we talk about assessment digital learning is, um, I think at least for the general public, assessment becomes synonymous with testing, and, and those are those are very different things. And, and I just want, just want to recognize that if we're, if we're thinking about digital learning and new modes of, of how kids are engaging and interacting in schools, it shouldn't be to move them back towards rote forms of assessment. Um, as we understand them, then in some ways our, our vocabulary needs to change with the kinds of uh, expectations what we're we're expecting kids to do. Yeah, I, I also think it's kind of important. I think it was Ken Robinson. He kind of coined the phrase that we act like the most important thing about students is their manufacturing date. Like everybody's not going to get everything at the same time. So if somebody produces, if if to me, I'm more, and I don't know necessarily how to calibrate a student's best. Um, but some students best on certain tasks is another student's crap, right? <clears throat> so how do we uh, ensure that that student is, is okay? Like just overall, like everybody's not going to be a mathematician, right? Like there, there, there are students that, like I teach fifth grade, so there are students that struggle with certain skills in fifth grade, and this is not the first year they've struggled. Right, so so they're they're kind of hip enough to figure out that even when I do my absolute best, I struggle, and these are the people that I'm competing with just here. So they're already on a track of what am I going to do, and I think it's important that that, that we give those kids 
a point of accessing to I think it was the most interesting man in the world and I said this on another video but I love this quote he says find out what you don't do well and then don't do that thing but the other side of it is we gotta figure out to give kids an opportunity to find out what they do well and I think that's something else that that um, you know that technology kinda helps us find out like you might be good at you know something else something that you had no idea about um, so there, there's that It's also the, the issue of, like, if you've made the end product that looks ugly, but to help teachers realize that that doesn't mean that the learning wasn't amazing. Right. Uh, right? Like, uh, and, and this is um, uh, Ira Glass is talking about when you start in radio, right? There's this, this, like, here's what you're shooting for and here's what you make but your taste tells you that it's crap and you still want to get up there. Um, and I think that, that that piece is like, just because this thing that you made the first time isn't great doesn't mean that the learning wasn't well beyond whatever it is that you that you created there. Um, and, I th and I also wonder, if, when we talk about choice, are there, some, are there still some things that we feel like every kid should be able to do? Right? I, I mean, like it, do we give this free range every time there's an assignment? Um, and if the answer is yes, I'm, I'm curious as to what that is, but then are there also like, no, I think by the time you leave, these are like five, five products that you should probably know how to do before you leave this classroom or this, this grade level or whatever the system is set up as. I, just Zach, I don't think, I don't know that it's product-based. I think that for me would be ways of being. So like when I'm teaching first-year comp, um, I may not get everyone to use a comma correctly every single time. In fact, I know I won't. But um, but I could but I could develop ways of being where you know that it's a kind gesture to read your work again, mm. and and that that's what professionals do for each other is read my work before I hand it to you so that it's not full of error as best as I can do it. So I think what I would wonder is are it's it's back to this dispositions and ways of being like maybe what we could agree on is that these things help us become certain kinds of people like kind civic involved I don't know well, I don't I, I don't even know if we'd agree on all of them but maybe within our local context we would but I worry that the products change too quickly right to, for them to be very meaningful for very long I, I guess I guess if I'm gonna go along with that then my thinking is then we have to make sure they know how to find out how to make whatever product it is that they are asked in whatever authentic real-world situation they may find themselves after they leave our kind of protective sphere. Like, you, oh, you're, you're great people, and you know how to do these things. These, the, you know how to treat one another, and you know how to access the information that you need. Even if I haven't, like, right, I haven't prepared you to write the, the two-page policy memo, but I got to make sure that you know how to find how to write the two-page policy memo. I want to go back to something you were talking about just a minute ago, Zach, about learning, um, and that, and I, and I think that the ways that bodies of knowledge or disciplines are organized, right, from like less abstract to more abstract, that's often how our curricula are are set up, and and but that's not how someone learns, a, mm. you know, a piece of information or even a process. They don't learn a process in a very linear. Um, marked out, categorized way, right? Which is much of how we have made sense of bodies of knowledge. And so I, I, um, I was thinking um, as we were just talking about the importance of both. And um, I think it's Chris Gutierrez has her syncretic 
um, learning and talking about how, yes, it's important to both have the vertical learning and the horizontal learning. So the learning that's organized in these very, in these hierarchies that are, that are, that are based on, on fields of study that have lasted for a long time to get us where we are as humans now, right? That's, that's important. And, and what, it, what happens, though, is that that's always so much more privileged than these other ways of knowing, these, these um, moments of connection across our everyday lives and, and um, happenstance and um, what we learn from being around people and ways of being, right? And it's, it's really the trying to get both of those moments together. Um, I, I, and I just, I've just recently talking to a group, too, about the importance of, of a, a body of knowledge about how the world works how things function. Like, I may not understand um, really the chemistry of something, let's say of erosion, that what we you know what happens with rock erosion, but that helps me understand what's happening in my backyard when I do go out there and, you know, and my garden is washing away. I do have a better understanding than, you know, than being completely lost about where to start to start to fix that problem. So I, I don't think we throw out bodies of knowledge. I don't think we throw out our disciplines. And I think it's, it's really is this question about the focus on processes um, and processes and practices that we, and ways of being and in addition to the products. And, and, but just dismantling the products, um, the privilege that we give products right now um, in education, and, and in more than just education, just in, in terms of our everyday lives, too. Finished products are often where we look to. I think it's important, too, to kind of think about, like, okay, I graduated high school in 1990. The World Wide Web was invented in 1989. So the world has changed so much since then. Like when I started college, that, that curriculum was already set. So they were preparing me for a world that literally did not exist yet, right? And the world is changing faster and faster. So I think there's a real danger in pretending that we know these are the set skills that this child will need in 10 years or in 15 years, right? I, I think it's more important to say, okay, here is what you've got access to now, and here's this planet that we live on. The world is kind of messed up, and that's our fault. And when I say our fault, the adults. You've got to make it better and kind of put that responsibility on kids in, in, in a more real sense. So they're starting to think of how can I make this whole thing better as opposed to how can I pass this test or how can I make a certain score in this assessment or how can I make, you know, the cheerleading team or, or, or whatever it might be, it, it's like in, in, in a very real sense, uh, we don't know what they need to know. Like there are certain, okay, they need to know how to read and communicate, but but I think that it, it's just a real danger in, in just saying, okay, we know if you don't know these 12 things, you're going to be a disaster in five years. Totally fair point, Al. And I think that echoes um, one of the people within the ed tech space that I've appreciated a lot, you know, reading up on, he constantly blogs and has a, a great sense of this, but it's Tom Whitby, and he talks a lot about the need for educators to remain relevant and not just tech savvy, not just able to you know pick up new tools that are coming their way, but actually remain relevant to 
the school as a system and also to their students as well. I mean, being that kind of person who, like we're just talking about here, who can help kids figure out, okay, why is this education important to me? What skills am I learning here that might be able to transfer to life down the road? Uh, like Antero was talking about a little bit earlier, how could what I'm doing and learning skill and maybe even tool-wise help me become a better citizen, a better you know, civic engager? So I want to get your take, your collective take, on that concept of how educators can stay relevant, uh, again, tying to digital learning day and digital media. And how do you separate the tech-savvy side of things versus the more pedagogical side of things there? So I guess I'd just come back and just point out that it's it really comes back to not being about the tools to be re relevant, right? So. If I look behind John, I literally can't play half of the media behind him because I don't have the physical devices for the tool. I don't have the tool for the content that's behind him, right? So I need to I need to stop worrying about an information delivery system and worry more about the forms of communication that we're going to be using, right? So for example, I think it's it's telling, right? And I'm thinking also about Al's point from a second ago. Um, and while we don't know what the dispositions are that we're going to need in the future, I think it's telling that uh, you know a month ago on Saturday Night Live, they were able to parody a podcast because it was that well-known and Serial was, or, yeah, Serial was just heard enough so that people could think through, you know, this new media form that's essentially just radio storytelling for the 21st century. And so I think at, at the end of the day, it's about thinking through how are we going to communicate with each other? What are the forms of, of, di of dispositions that are relevant for young people? It's about being fun and engaged and, and loving. I want to I want to uh, pick up on a piece of um, of what Al said and think about the potential emotional effect of saying to kids, "We don't know what the future is. Everything is uncertain, and everything we're doing now won't be relevant." I mean, and I know Al that I'm I'm not saying what you said, um, but I'm 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 kind of thinking how that might get heard. Uh, when we say it out loud to kids, um, and that that seems kind of terrifying, um, or that that could potentially seem terrifying. And I'm thinking some of the, uh, some of the students uh, that that I used to teach who came from very uncertain home lives, and then for me to say, "And your future is also uncertain," um, that we have to think about how we shape that conversation um, with folks. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's an important piece there. And I, and Al, I, I'm not saying that that's what you you said. Uh, I'm just trying to be cognizant of how that might get heard by folks when we say when we say it out loud, especially in front of students. I think though, like, okay, I teach history, and anybody that's taught American history, and you don't terrify a group of students, I genuinely don't understand how you pull that off. So we have arrived at a destination call right now. And and this and we got to right now through a series of these historical events. And to me, students are I have students, I have ten year olds coming to class asking me about ISIS, right? So they're already scared. <laughs> like they're already terrified. And so then what ends up happening when 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 we as adults or caring, you know, educators or whatever, sprinkle on, you know, Disney and you know Nickelodeon on, on top of things that they already have accepted as terrifying realities then that's when you have that distrust 
right? Then it's kind of like, wait a minute, I came to you as a concerned adult, and, and I know what I know, and you're telling me that all I've got to do is learn my multiplication facts and how to, you know, spell check on Google Docs, and I'm going to, you know, be the next president. Like, to me, for better or for worse, kids are already a little bit more nuanced in, in their understanding of this planet because of the Internet, right? And so as, as much as we want to protect or, you know, and be careful of, of how we, you know, it's a, it's a very harsh world that we live in. But the sooner, I think, that, that we start addressing the realities, right, like people talk about stuff like, you know, global warming as if it's like an opinion piece. Like to me, like the new goal for humanity is there should be humans when the sun blows up or something, right? Like let's just try to stay here as long as we can as opposed to thinking about, um, you know, where am I going to live? What is the interest rate going to do? Like, you know, there there, there are real problems that, that students could, you know, participate in at least having a, a conversation. It, it reminds me of something that I had students this year that wanted to start a debate club, and so they did. And one of the topics that they wanted to uh, discuss during the debate club was the importance of a fundraiser that we was having at our school. So to them, the fundraiser were like, well, we're at school and we're trying to learn and we're trying to do this and then we have to stop and, and, and do this other thing. But this was coming from the students, right? So they're, they're already pretty aware of, you know, things that I think that we just feel uncomfortable having certain conversations about. And, and I would agree that the, the need for the uncomfortable conversation is, is definitely true. Uh, I think kind of speaking to some pieces of what Kim and Anna brought up earlier, saying, I don't know what it's going to look like, but the, the way things are going, it seems like you're going to be able to always find a community of people to support you, either in a physical or an online space, because those are things that keep happening. You know, it's just like the, I'm uncertain to, of form, but I am certain of community. Uh, is is possibly a spe uh, piece of it, and I, I know that this goes along with uh, some of the connected learning principles uh, as well. Um, so yeah, I think have the difficult conversations and say there are a lot of things we don't know, but here are some things that you can take solace in the idea that we do know. You know that the, for both of you, what I'm thinking about is that yes, at the end of the day, with devices, new devices, cyborgs, robots taking over the earth, you know, whatever it is, or we kill ourselves off, um, suns, sun explodes, whatever those futures entail, we're human beings, right? And human beings have incredible capacity, you know, for good and bad, um, for, to cause pain, um, to cause comfort, um, and we also have, we have needs that we know of. We need, we need other people in connection, we need time alone to think, we need, you know, stimulation or not, and and whether or not we have devices or new devices in classrooms or in people's hands, or not, um, it, it, that's I think that that needs to be at the core. We're seeing a lot of times in classrooms, great new devices, and and the ways that they're being used in classrooms are just reinforcing the old norms of of, of classroom interaction, which are very disconnecting, are are very inhuman, inhumane even at times, where we're we're cutting people out people's movement. You know, you can't move out of a desk. Well, now you can't move out of a desk because you're at a computer space. You need to you know be on task for a certain amount of time, and that's there. There's a someone survey you know watching what it is and your your time on task and. In these new ways, um, you know that that we still see these. So we have these new possibilities, new devices there, but we're seeing old old forms being reinforced. And so, 
I, I, I think even whether or not we're talking about devices or tech, we should be looking at those kinds of norms of interaction that I think disconnect us from each other and, um, and can be quite harmful um, for human beings. I'd just add to that. I think, I think about the ways that, that social problems, not just in our classrooms, then also get exacerbated, right? So the entire Gamergate issue that you know, plagued us last year continues to do it this year. Uh, the ways a hashtag like Black Lives Matters um, becomes part of the, the cultural milieu and how we need to talk through what's happening today. The way uh, a young uh, girl can put up her suicide letter at the end of 2014, Leah Alcorn, uh, just in terms of gender identity and the ways these get expressed and amplified, I think we need to think about how digital tools are, are spaces that can um, oppress, liberate, amplify, and, and how teachers need to, to think through what that does within our classrooms as well. Well, I think that it's hard to believe. I mean, we've already hit 55 minutes here, and we're just a few minutes out from the top of the hour. So I did want to get just kind of one last round from everybody before we move into our typical outro here. And I thought one good question to end on, and we'll kind of do the sandwich positive, critical, and positive at the end there. But what is one particular either resource or community that is your go-to for helping solve or address some of the challenges that we brought up here today? And if you don't mind, we'll just kind of go in the same order left to right. Al, do you want to start us off? Uh, I love Google Plus Hangouts and Twitter. <laughs> Those are the greatest like resources to me, and, and not so much for the platform, but for the people that are on the other side. Of, of the platform. So to me that's just the greatest thing happening right now because I don't I don't feel so alone now when I'm having these these thoughts. I have a, a community of people that are not necessarily down the street but you know just a couple clicks away. So perfect. Thanks Al. Anna Gosh, you got me thinking. I hadn't thought ahead on, on that one. Um, so yeah, so my go-to's definitely are our ways of connecting um, through Hashtag literacies, and that's a great community that has great conversations. And also, hashtag tech equity, or techquity is actually T E C H E Q U I T Y. Did I do that right? <laughs> techquity. Um, and that was started by Joe Dillon and um, Mahad Bali, and um, I think Kim Dulliard's in, in on that. Um, and they wanted to have an open, an open conversation that is both um, you know, critical and creative around what is it that we can do. Um, next, right, to, to keep this conversation going. Perfect. And Tara? Yeah, I, I agree uh, with both Anna and Al, and I guess I'd throw out that um, I, I tend to find really spending a lot of time around a table with people. I've been playing games with young people lately, um, and, and I think there's there's something to be said about the socialization that happens when uh, our, so our digital devices aren't necessarily always in front of us, and, and I think my professional learning community oftentimes is being able to um, have some caffeine or sugar or alcohol and be able to, um, not with young people, um, and, and be able to engage in, in powerful conversations uh, in those spaces as well. Thanks. And Kim? Well, I, you know, I, I think these people, I, we, you can tell we all hang in similar circles. I, I just, as a literacy scholar, the, the hashtag is really powerful. I think people like forget what a big deal the hashtag is. And I, I can't believe how many communities I connect with by 
stumbling upon a hashtag and then finding three more, you know, people to follow who are, you know, sharing really interesting resources. Um, I am trying to have a really good habit lately of asking students questions <laughs> like, how's this working? How are we doing? Should we give up Twitter? How's this? How about Google Docs? How's that going for you? And about every two or three weeks, I think in all my classes, we're kind of stopping and like, is this working for us or is it just become another thing to check? Like, it really has to fit our purposes. So I'm trying to do a better job of having a lot of reflection cycles um, in my teaching where they're getting to drop some things, add others, depending on what we're trying to get done. That's great, Kim. Thanks. And Zach? For me, it's a habit uh, of mind. I, I know a bunch of folks who limit the streams of resources through a device. So they're like, this is my one social networking app on my smartphone. Um, and for me, it is as, like, I can connect with any of those apps across any of my devices, and the most helpful resource has been thinking um, that I has been keeping in mind that I don't have to drink from the fire hose. Every piece of information can be consumed like a like a water fountain. Uh, and I, th I think that keeping that in that that is in, within my control. I can turn it on or I can turn it off, but it's me, not the information that's deciding uh, how I process it and and consume it. That's a great point to end on. Thanks, Zach. So again, thank you all for your time, your energy, your insights. Hopefully, if you've been watching this, you found it a really helpful, plus inspiring, motivating. We're going to have, uh, as usual, a full video recording of this up on www.connectedlearningtv with other curated content along the way, uh, some of the resources that got shared out here. Uh, as well as in the Hangout chat that you guys can't see, but we'll make sure you guys get a hold of the resources that were shared there too. So again, if you found this conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about the upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV, please visit that site again, www.connectedlearning.tv, and sign up for the email newsletter. And I hope a lot of you out there are going to be part of next week's Digital Learning Day. And speaking of March 13th, it actually marks the three-year anniversary of Connected Learning TV's webinar series as well. And I do want to let everybody who's watching this know who may have been a, a longtime fan of the webinar series, tomorrow, Friday, March 6th, is actually my last day with the Connected Learning Alliance and my last day with the Connected Learning TV webinar series as I move on to another stage in my own career. So I would play some Sarah McLaughlin music here, but that would probably result in the video getting taken down for copyright violations, so you'll just have to imagine it in your head. Uh, I did just briefly want to say what a huge privilege it's been to watch the Connected Learning Vision grow from something theoretical to something that is actually impactful. And that's due in very large part to the community that's grown around this webinar series. And at times I know it may feel like simply having conversations together isn't doing enough, but when I look back through the webinar archive, I see a lot of thinking and a lot of questioning that has inspired a lot of innovation 
and empowerment as well. And I hope you do too. So thank you to all of the viewers across the 140 plus countries around the world for all of the literally millions of minutes that you guys have spent watching this series and for your tweets, your chats, your questions, and your feedback. So Connect Learning TV lives on and it's in good hands and it will continue to showcase the best and brightest examples of connected learning in action. And I know the connected learning community is just going to continue to grow uh, broader and deeper. So this has been John Veraloni, Community Manager, signing off for now. But thank you again, everybody.